Welcome to another episode of Ye Oldie Villanova English Podcast. This week I will be speaking with Professor Brooke Hunter, who studies the medieval period, and we will be talking about all sorts of issues that come up when you think about the Middle Ages and medieval literature, and we'll talk about how do you apply modern theories and modern ideas to that period. We're going to touch uh, on critical race theory, we'll talk about feminism, we'll talk about historicism, and we will try to suss out what we talk about when we talk about the Middle Ages. So I hope you enjoy the conversation. I certainly enjoyed having it. And here we go. And, and, and there we are. Okay. Um, so I'm, I'm talking today with uh, Professor Brooke Hunter from the Villanova English Department, and I wanted to give you a chance to sort of introduce yourself. So before we get into asking questions, can you tell me a bit about yourself, like your research and teaching interests, and what led you to choose to teach literature? Uh, sure. So uh, hi, my name is Brooke Hunter, and I'm a medievalist uh, in the English Department Villanova. I specialize in 14th century literature, and especially the literature uh, of Chaucer. Um, I wrote a book that came out in 2019 called Forging Boethius, and it's about the reception history of the philosopher Boethius, and in particular, a 13th century forgery um, that presents itself as a sequel to the real Boethius's final work, The Consolation of Philosophy. So it's sort of about how that forgery affects the reception history of the real Boethius. And, um, my other interests are in how medieval academic texts and university textbooks influence vernacular writers. So that's kind of what I'm looking at right now. Um, I teach classes like Chaucer. Um, I teach a class called the Fabulous Middle Ages, which is about the ways in which history and fiction get mixed up in the Middle Ages. And this coming semester, I'm teaching a class on medieval romance. So you taught a grad seminar session on um, critical theory as applied to pre-modern texts. So just to put it very simply, can we apply literary theory the way we know it now to these pre-modern texts? Yeah, I think we absolutely can. Um, and I want to kind of frame what the issue is to talk before I give this answer of like why we can do it. So one of the concerns that scholars and students of medieval literature have as we turn to read medieval works is whether or not we can faithfully and accurately understand the text, what the text is trying to say to us. Um, given the immense differences that we see between our culture and our time and the culture and time of the Middle Ages. So sort of the modern, the way in which perspectives differ between medieval culture and modern culture. So one methodology or theory um, of how we can consider those differences of time and perspective is historicism. And historicism basically advances the idea that we must always situate the works that we are reading within the, their own cultures, the cultures that produce them. Um, and that we, it is best to examine these texts from um, the perspective of their own culture, so medieval culture in this case. So there's a lot that's really great about this theory, and there's a lot that we can appreciate about a text if we do this, if we historicize. We can think about what the author was trying to say, how the author understood his or her own culture, references to other texts that the author knew, um, and things like that. And in doing that, in historicizing in that way, the hope is that we can avoid anachronistic readings. So readings that project a modern belief or understanding onto a past text. So one of the texts that I taught um, in this course was um, a work, uh, the beginning of a text by D.W. Robertson's um, that was called Preface to Chaucer. 
So Robertson's a proponent of this theory or methodology, historicism. Um, and he says that we need to learn as much as we can about medieval culture um, and use that to inform our reading of, say, Chaucer. And this method, as I said, has many benefits. And I think it's always going to be part of reading a medieval text. But it's important to remember that Robertson's historicism is itself a modern methodology. So he's writing in the 1960s. So medieval authors and artists actually care very little about anachronism. So from the get-go, if we're using a historicist methodology, we're already adopting concerns that are anachronistic to medieval texts. Um, and we're going to, uh, as we keep talking, I think we'll talk about some of the other articles that uh, critique historicist gazes. And they say things like, all historical gazes, when we're looking back at a text, are always going to be framed from the perspective of the historian. Um, so we say, for example, sometimes history is written by the winners. Um, so whoever is writing the history frames and colors the perspective that they're looking from. And so it's really not a surprise that Robertson, who was an elite, educated, religious man, when he looks back at medieval text, finds only messages in medieval texts that offer elite, educated, religious, male perspectives. Um, so these perspectives are absolutely present in medieval texts, but they're not the only meaning or perspective that we can get from medieval texts. And so by adopting different theoretical perspectives, feminist perspectives, for example, um, to, to use a different modern theoretical methodological approach, we can um, glean different meanings and understandings um, from medieval authors. So all theories and methodologies have insights and blindnesses. And I think adopting a very wide variety of perspectives and methodologies is not only possible for medieval texts, but is really necessary to understand them fully. Okay, thank you. And I wanted to highlight something you said. So are you saying that basically the very notion that we need to separate out a given era from ourselves, that we need to kind of contextualize the past, that there's something modern about that, that idea? Yeah, so that is, um, that is absolutely something that is a, a modern idea. It's a modern historical perspective and a modern understanding of history. Um, if we think about medieval art, for example, and depictions of things like um, the nativity or the birth of Jesus, um, frequently Mary and Joseph will be dressed in the sort of height of medieval fashion of whatever era um, the artist is working in. So medieval artists often don't care about anachronism at all. And um, so to apply that carrying back to a medieval text, um, I think is very fruitful for what we understand history to be doing and is helpful for us, but is also itself, as I said, an anachronistic perspective. So you, you brought up uh, this D.W. Robertson reading. So um, according to Robertson, there's this quote here. It may be that art and literature have languages made up of conventions of expression, which we should learn to read, just as we learned to read an earlier language or a foreign language. So could you talk about some of the conventions of expression in medieval literature? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and this is what make, one of the things that makes this approach, historicist uh, approach, so fruitful. So a good example of medieval conventions or languages that we need to learn to better appreciate uh, medieval texts um, are one, their frequent reference to older authorities and sort of the reverence that medieval texts have for authoritative citations. So if we think about sort of our modern perspective, we tend to value things that are new, that are innovative, um, sort of what is the, the latest thing. And that's definitely not true in um, the vast majority of medieval texts. 
So there are many medieval works that collect together and cite um, pithy authoritative statements from past authors. And they find more truth and value in those statements than say what a person living in the medieval time is experiencing or finding or new um, or discovering for themselves. So one ex good example of this is a very popular medieval work um, by Isidore of Seville and it's called the Etymologiae or the Etymology. It's written in the seventh century. And what it is is it's basically an encyclopedia of knowledge that's based on the etymologies of words. So what we can learn about words by understanding their history and origins. The vast majority, if you were, if you were to read Isidore's etymology, of these etymologies are completely bogus. Um, he's drawing them from classical sources and earlier writings. But if you read this text, it's a very, very medieval understanding um, of the importance and even the sanctity of the words we use, that they hide these inner meanings and history. And I think there's another really good example in this text of sort of this reverence for authority that we see in the Middle Ages. Um, so Isidore is talking about, at one point, the town in which he lives, um, Seville. And while modern medievalists would have loved for him to have looked out a window and described what Seville looks like, instead of doing that, he actually cites a past authority from you know, many, many years before to, to um, talk about the town in which he's living. And in this, we sort of see this reverence for the past, um, for the authority of the past. And I think it's something that's pretty odd to modern readers. And so unless you know this sort of language of um, authority, it's hard to kind of grapple with this text. Is there a way in which a modern medievalist is more interested in the medieval era than the medieval people themselves were? Are they always hearkening back to? That's, that's really interesting. Um, I mean, I think that medieval people understand themselves through this authority. Um, they are interested in their own period, but their interest is expressed in a different way. So talking about these historicist critics, they emphasize the differences between the modern world and the medieval world. So what is the danger of emphasizing differences like that? Yeah, um, so this is kind of moving into some of the critiques of historicism that we read for the course. And um, one of the dangers of emphasizing only differences between the modern and medieval world is that um, it can cause us to kind of go too far. So uh, Louise Freidenberg is, wrote a very famous critique of historicism that borrows a psychoanalytic lens to understand um, that methodology. And she says that the methodological posture that historicists adopt um, is the posture of a melancholic. And I'll talk a little bit more about what she means by that. So she basically says that historicists have constructed a relationship with the past, with the medieval past, um, that mimics sort of a lost object. And that term object, object is using psychoanalytic language. Um, basically an object is anything that an individual has invested with a lot of emotional energy. So she say, says, historicists have constructed the past as a lost object um, that is irreparably lost to them and that they mourn it. And this is that melancholic stance um, as they would mourn a lost loved thing. So they also position themselves as the only people who can sort of responsibly recuperate that lost object, the medieval past, by stripping off all of their contemporary understandings, um, beliefs, and sort of through this, this fantasy of objectivity of stripping off their own uh, modern understandings can be reunited with the past. And I think what's really interesting about what Freidenberg is saying is she's really alerting us to the fact that the process of scholarly work is always marked by desire in the scholar. And it's always wrapped up 
by in the identities that we inhabit in the present. And this is true for historicists as much as it's true for any other scholar um, using any other methodology. So, but by claiming that they're the only people who can commune with the past and understand the past, historicists end up conveying, as Freidenberg says, authority and reality on the work that they do and derealizing and excluding the work of other scholars and Freidenberg in particular is talking about feminist scholars um, and that historicists would say, well, feminist scholars are anachronistic, they're narcissistic, they're self-interested, and thus that their readings are valueless. Um, but Bradenburg's critique is that historicists are kind of doing the same thing. Bradenburg also points out, using again this sort of psychoanalytic methodology, that historicists are only really interested in how a text understands itself, and that a text or an author has sort of full understanding and full control of what they're presenting in a text. But she's also interested in um, things that the author is saying or doing or meaning in a text that they don't necessarily understand or have full control over. Um, and modern methodologies um, can help us see things about the past that the authors themselves couldn't see or understand. So reading Chaucer's Wife of Bath's Tale, for example, from a feminist perspective um, is helpful because we can see things about the misogyny of Chaucer's culture that maybe Chaucer himself wasn't even aware of. I mean, that's true of all sorts of different other modern theories that can offer us insights into medieval culture. So is there a, a tendency among medievalists to idealize or romanticize the medieval past? Um, and I was wondering if that, even if that was something that you perceived in, in the field, like are there some people who seem to, you know, have an almost escapist desire to get into this, into this time, or is that not, does that not happen? Yeah, I think that that definitely does happen. I think that it's interesting because responses to the Middle Ages are often or sometimes sort of bifurcated, right? So there's people um, who present the medieval past as a time of violence, brutality, um, you know, orthodox religious dogma. Um, and then there's a time, there's a, there's a, you know, there's a set of people who present the Middle Ages as a time of um, faith and peace and order. Um, so there's sort of this bifurcated view of the Middle Ages, one of which is romanticized. One view is romanticized and the other is sort of demonized. Um, and I suppose that we do see that to some degree in what historicists do. I mean, I think they think of themselves as really trying to present an objective view of the Middle Ages, um, you know, warts and all. But I think often it is uh, sort of a, the image that they give is one of authority and, you know, I, I suppose coherence. So we'll, we'll talk about the Geraldine Hang reading that you had sent me. So Hang argues that we should use the word race in reference to the Middle Ages, especially when talking about how societies and texts relate to people of color and to Jews. So why does Hang feel that way? And do you think that she's right? So basically for the past 15 years, uh, the debate about whether or not we can use contemporary theory to talk about medieval works has been more or less settled in favor of using theory. Um, but there are a few types of theory that, and scholarly topics that have remained very resistance, resistant to the influx um, of critical theory. And one of the topics uh, or discussions is the question of race. So when we're reading medieval texts, we're often 
looking at works in non-English languages. So sometimes we're, if we're reading a medieval text, a medieval scholar will be reading in Latin. Even if you're in an English department, you might be reading in, Fran in French. And even if you are reading in English, um, you may be looking at archaic forms of the language, so Old English, Middle English. Um, and in these texts then, the word race, the modern English word race, doesn't get used. Um, so the question has been, if medieval authors don't use that term, don't use the word race, um, if we use that term, are we being anachronistic? Um, if we use it to talk about the racialized depictions that we're seeing in medieval texts. And also contemporary discussions of race also often focus on the modern world um, in which race is largely defined in terms of biology and science, which are um, again, things that the medieval world uh, were not, didn't discuss or know about. Um, and it's marked by the transatlantic slave trade, which is also was not quite present in the Middle Ages. So we can see how, you know, given our previous discussion about anachronism, in an attempt to avoid anachronism, scholars have really avoided using the term race or talking about race or borrowing critical race theory to discuss medieval works. And so what Hang is arguing um, in her book, The Invention of Race in the Middle Ages, is that she sort of has two main arguments. One, both that we should use medieval race theory um, to talk about medieval texts, and that medieval, uh, critical race theory, excuse me, critical race theory um, is a rich and really sophisticated vocabulary that can help us understand racialization and racism in the Middle Ages. And then two, her second argument, is that the absence of discussion of the medieval world and medieval racisms within modern race theory is something that needs to be addressed and rectified. So there's sort of two big contributions, one to the study of the Middle Ages by using critical race theory, and then secondly to critical race theory by um, you know, in using sort of medieval historical understandings to understand um, race in this new way. But I think it's also important to note that uh, medieval understandings of race really do need to be historicized, right? So coming back to that question of historicizing. Um, race in the Middle Ages is often understood in terms that um, are not discussed by modern critical race theories. So in terms of environment or religion, as opposed to biology or phenotype, um, you know, race in the Middle Ages is different. But I think that I definitely agree with Hang that we can still benefit from calling it race um, and racializing, using those terms, um, using the insights of critical race theory. And I think it's really important, Hang points out, that critical race theory um, you know, doesn't have a definition of race that would be anachronistic to the Middle Ages. That is, you know, race, critical race theory usually defines race not as sort of a stable um, referent or something with a specific content, but rather as a structural relationship for the articulation and management of human difference. Um, and so this is from Hang. And so really, according to Hang, there isn't a problem with using the term race at all, because we can historicize that term um, and you know, use it how it's used um, in the Middle Ages. So you talk about in, in the Middle Ages that race was understood in, in some of these different ways, or that what we might now call race was understood in some of these different ways, and you mentioned this environmental thing and, and phenotypical things. Could you talk a bit about what that is? Uh, yeah, absolutely. So, you know, medieval texts have, um, they have theories of human difference. 
Um, and those include things like um, phenotypical difference among humans being understood through the type of environment you live in. So people with darker skin, um, some medieval texts say, um, have darker skin because they live in hotter environments and people with lighter skin have lighter skin because they live in colder environments. So if we focus on race in terms of phenotype or skin color difference, we might say, well, that's an example of medieval racial thinking. Um, but, you know, Hang really points out that one of the main uh, sort of constructors of human difference in the Middle Ages is religion. And I think that using critical race theory to talk about the ways in which um, there are hierarchical um, differentiations between humans in the Middle Ages based on religion can be very helpful. All right. So where do you see theory and medieval studies going in the near future? Well, I think that this, this question of race in medieval studies, um, that there is a lot more to unpack uh, and that that is, a, as I said, a really rich site of ongoing research. And I think um, something that sort of ties together all the things that we've been discussing uh, is the, the medievalist response to the anachronistic use um, of medieval symbols by groups that are white supremacists. So there's been a lot of um, response and interest in um, the use of medieval symbols by white supremacists at places like the Charlottesville protests, um, or even, even sort of older and longer lasting um, use by white supremacists like the KKK, borrowing images from medieval crusaders, thinking them of themselves as white knights um, and borrowing, you know, images from the Middle Ages to claim um, the medieval past in this anachronistic way as a moment of sort of a white, um, pure white identity. And I think that there is, there is so much work to be done by medievalists to uh, you know, theorize that and to historicize those anachronistic um, claiming of the Middle Ages um, and to show that, you know, the Middle Ages is a very diverse time um, that is by no means sort of a, you know, wonderland of, of white identity. All right. So Hank states that many find it natural to consider the Middle Ages as somehow outside real time. Why is this and what is the effect of doing it? Yeah, so there's a very long history of presenting the Middle Ages as profoundly different from the modern period. Um, you know, we, I think we saw this relatively recently with Stephen Greenblatt's book, The Swerve, which came out in 2012. Um, and it won the National Book Award, it won an, an MLA Book Prize, and I think it even won the Pulitzer Prize. And it has this very traditional historicist narrative of periodization that presents the modern as sort of profoundly different from and other to the medieval, as we see in the title, it's called The Swerve, How the World Became Modern. And I think that sense of the medieval as other to the modern is profoundly different to modernity. Uh, really ignores the medieval and tries to excise it from history and from modernity's understanding of itself. So, you know, in this view, the medieval gets associated with backwardsness, violence, brutality, dogmatic religious orthodoxy, all those things that I mentioned before. And the modern then gets to think of itself as rational, just, progressive, um, and all of these positive things. Um, 
certainly there are many important changes that happen as we move into modernity, but I think it's really important to remember that all periodization is conventional, conventional, and that those narratives could be told differently from different perspectives. And moreover, by sort of castigating those negative traits as medieval, we can miss the ways in which the modern world is itself often brutal, dogmatic, violent, and in which medieval things um, can erupt into the present. And so we can think about, for example, um, when George W. Bush called for a crusade after 9-11, um, or the use of torture, or the borrowing of crusader symbols um, by hate groups like the KKK, or the Proud Boys, um, or the protesters that we shot in Charlottesville. And I think that these are really fascinating and terrifying appropriations of the medieval that medievalists are currently trying to understand and fight against and contextualize. Um, and this is sort of one way of considering race in the Middle Ages that can actually help inform both modern critical race theory um, and help us to better understand ourselves. So, you know, having sort of a better view of the, the Middle Ages uh, can help us to understand our own contemporary moment as much as it can help us understand the medieval past. I think that's a great place to leave it. Thanks so much for, for talking with me today. Uh, yeah. Yeah, really appreciate it. That's it for this week. Thank you for joining us, and we will be back in two weeks with another episode, and we're going to be looking at some poetry, so I hope you'll join us then. Remember to rate and review us favorably, if you please, on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts.